the inspiring story of baseball player turned mental health advocate Drew Robinson, Florida's Python bounty and the Lady Hunters out to get him, and marking the sixth year anniversary of the Dallas police massacre and my final thoughts. That's all next. But first, my losers of the week. And this week, my losers all have something in common. They participate in the performative and purely performative activism theater that does nothing to help their various causes, just makes them look ridiculous and insane. First up in that bracket are the whacked out climate change activists who have taken a global approach to their derangement syndrome. Gluing themselves to various art pieces in London and elsewhere, plus vandalizing the surrounding spaces with spray paint. Disguising themselves as elderly women, then proceeding to throw cake at the glass protecting the famous Mona Lisa at the Louvre Museum in Paris. And here at home, deflating SUV tires, and then littering their windshields with leaflets explaining the so-called merit of their vandalism. Quick PSA to these tire extinguishers for your own good. Make sure you keep this kind of crap to big liberal cities because I can guarantee you this. If you try this in Texas, Tennessee, or about anywhere in the South or Midwest, you're going to leave with a hell of a lot more than a deflated tire. I can tell you that. And to the rest of these climate change zealots, what do these stunts do to save the actual environment? And that's the issue I have with all of these self-indulgent performances. Instead of these tree-hugging Looney Tunes using their time to clean or preserve Mother Earth, they coordinate publicity stunts to make themselves feel important, like they've really done something. Well, you haven't. It's an empty virtue signal that cheapens the stance you claim to fight for and makes you all look insane. The people that have to come clean up your mess or fix tires aren't going to miraculously stop using fossil fuels because you vandalized museums or destroyed their belongings. In fact, likely the opposite, because now you just pissed them off. Go clean a beach or plant a tree. This woke theater ain't it. But our next loser of the week also hails from the woke protester Shallow Gene Pool and is the idiot who tried to distract and derail hot dog eating champion Joey Chestnut. But that so-called animal rights protester donning a Darth Vader mask learned, or at least was taught, a lesson when Joey Chestnut himself handled the situation. Take a look. Yeah, lesson learned, you don't stand between a man and his hot dogs, kid. Chestnut still won the contest, but has since said he regrets putting that 21-year-old Berkeley bozo in a chokehold. Why? I don't advocate violence, but these punks need to learn their BS won't be tolerated because they've been mollycoddled for far too long. Maybe these losers could become winners if they learn some respect, manners, and consequences. But speaking of manners, I had to include this Rhode Island State Senator Tierra Mack as an honorable mention for this week. She's not a loser, but she's not, well, a winner either. Vote Senator Mack. Yes, that is 28-year-old Rhode Island State Senator Tierra Mack, a Democrat, shocking, I know, showing off her twerking skills on the official district TikTok page. Maybe I'm just old school, but I don't think twerking skills are evidence of political prowess, though I could be wrong. I'm just going to leave it at that because that video, well, it says it all. A picture is worth a thousand words. Well, that video is worth something, I'm sure. But still ahead, former baseball player Drew Robinson survived his attempted suicide and is now using his platform to raise mental health awareness. And his shocking story is next. 
Days before his 28th birthday, San Francisco Giants outfielder Drew Robinson attempted suicide. He put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger, but miraculously, he survived the attempt. The shot severely damaged his right eye, but he was alive and woke up in extreme pain, contemplating whether to try again or call 911. He made the call instead. Now, he lost his right eye, but returned to baseball with the Giants AAA affiliate in Sacramento. He has since retired from the game, but uses his story, his platform, and his perseverance to raise awareness about depression, suicide, and mental health. Joining me now is Drew Robinson. Drew, thank you so much for being with me. Of course. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. And we were talking before we all came on camera that you and I have actually met before in Southern California. So there's that. Um, we'll do like an after show about that someday. But listen, I actually learned about your story because my fiance, JP, who, who you also know, is super passionate about mental health and especially when it comes to baseball and athletics and the pressure that's put on you guys. And it's one of those things that athletes generally just don't talk about because obviously it's a very hyper masculine environment and feelings aren't something that's at the forefront. But for you, this has become an advocacy you're really passionate about. Take me back to when you were struggling and, and what was going through your head at that time. Yeah, I mean, just to do, I guess, the cliff notes, I I was just, I didn't realize I was struggling with a pretty severe level of internal conflict just because, like you said, it's not talked about. Um, I didn't hear, I didn't learn about the, the terminology with these kind of things. I didn't realize that some of the way that some of the habits that I had were actually maybe signs and symptoms of some internal distress with, at times, depression, at times, anxiety. Um, so I didn't really understand what I was battling, what I was going through, because, again, I didn't just have the education. Um, so looking back, I've understood, like I've accepted and realized that it's always kind of been there. It's, um, I would say it just kind of comes in waves. Um, and then ultimately getting to the end of 2019 and into 2020, um, a couple pretty significant things happened in my life that were more acute um, uh, triggers, and I kind of word them as the three ingredients for a recipe of disaster, uh, which ultimately led me to realizing that I really was um, not as stable as I as I would have liked. And again, being a male and being um, an adult, I didn't like to admit that I didn't have things figured out. So I um, I was really struggling inside and um, really trying to figure out how to how to balance this out. But at that point, like I said, it was a little. Um, I was too far along and um, couldn't really process it myself. So unfortunately, made a really bad decision. And like you said, luckily I survived. But um, it's it's kind of gotten me to a place where um, I've realized that can't take things for granted, um, even though you're always going to at times. But yeah, like I said, I I think I've realized that it's it's all it was always there, um, and then just certain life adversities and certain things brought out um, what was already kind of happening and and brought it out in a very ugly way, unfortunately. So talking about the game, do you think a lot of this had to do with the stress of the game itself? I know that it can't all be about athletics and it can't all be about Major League Baseball and the highs and the lows of that, but that certainly had to have been a trigger. I mean, I just know from my fiancé, he suffered from extreme anxiety when he was doing really well. It was great, and then he started to not do well, and he got booed, and he would sit on Twitter, and he would read the awful comments about himself, and you know, he went through a period of time where he got sent down, and it was hard on him, and so much so that he retired Tired from the game. Obviously, your situation's a little different, but how much of this was triggered by baseball and the game itself? 
Yeah, I mean, I have a hard time saying it's just all one thing or, or a couple things. Um, I think it's really, like I said, looking back, I just had kind of ingrained thought patterns and, and self-talk habits that really were going to come out in any environment that I was putting myself in. Um, and so for me, that was baseball. So yeah, baseball is just a very pressure feel pressure filled environment. Um, just like most careers, you have to perform, you have to, um, make things happen. But like I said, it just being the, the everyday type thing and, um, going, doing the ups and downs. And like I said, it's just such an everyday type grind and it's out in front of thousands of, of people. So, um, it's a little bit more likely that you can kind of get overwhelmed at times. So for me, it was baseball. For me, it was a lot of relationship triggers. Um, so like I said, I hate, I hate saying it's one thing because realistically baseball also brought me a lot of amazing life experience and a lot of really high joys, um, and things that I really cherish today still. So, um, for me, it was baseball because that was the environment that I was in. Um, but like I said, I think it was more like these ingrained, um, thought patterns and habits that weren't the most sustainable, most healthy approach and perspective on life. Yeah, you know, the thing about baseball, too, and I've learned this from JP, is that it's really the only sport where you fail more than you succeed. And even when you fail, you were still at the top if you just fail less than everybody else. I mean, it's a game of failure, but also athletes coming up through high school and in through the college process and, of course, through the major leagues and the minor leagues and all of that, you know, you're really not taught how to fail on a personal level. So when that starts happening, it becomes a trigger. Of course, many other things that occurred in your life, relationship issues, issues that we all have. But I think a lot of people wonder, too, because Major League Baseball does offer sports psychology, things like that. Do players not feel like they can seek out those services or what is missing for, for athletes in, in modern day since mental health has been more of an issue and, and more of a topic that has been discussed? Yeah, I think there's always going to be um, a little bit of that hesitancy when reaching out for the first time, just mainly from a discomfort level. It's, it's a new thing to do. It's really hard for anybody to admit, like I said earlier, that they don't have it all figured out, that they don't know how to like really process them, process what's going on inside. Um, and then, like I said, I think more of the stigma is that, that it's a sign of weakness when you are yeah. feeling that way, which, um, these days it kind of like makes my skin crawl because I've accepted the fact that that's not the case at all. And it's actually the opposite. Um, so I, but I do think there's a little bit of hesit hesitancy at, at, um, at this point still when it comes to athletes, um, utilizing those resources just because, um, like I said, the stigma of feeling like it's, it's a sign of weakness or feeling like it might get back to the, to the organization um, or that it might be a sign that they are not trustworthy or, or willing to be able to be relied on when things get tough, um, which, again, it's, it's the exact opposite. Like it's, it's encouraged. It's there because it's, we want we, like the, those resources are there so that you can get these things off your chest so that you can process these things. So an hour later, two hours later, later when the game starts, you have less things on your mind and you actually become more reliable because you're able to focus on your craft a little bit easy, more easily. So um, I do just think there's always going to be a little bit of a hesitancy and that's why the stigma is what the stigma is. Um, but that's why I'm so passionate about this because I learned in the hardest way possible that that's not the case. Um, and then going through, the process myself, um, knowing what it's like to be in those shoes of players not wanting to talk about it, thinking that it might be soft or a sign of you not knowing what you're doing. Um, I just know that that can be the case when they're going through it in the, in, in, in the, in the player's shoes. So i um, just trying to help bridge the gap and make them realize that 
these resources are available because they are very, very beneficial. Right. Well, we actually sat down a couple weeks ago with a high school player for the Tennessee Vols who uh, he actually was struggling through panic attacks and didn't play. And ESPN went out and went ahead and, and just took it upon themselves to say that he failed a performance enhancing drug test when in reality he was having panic attacks. So that's an aside. But again, it goes back to college players as well. Still an incredible amount of pressure. So what you're doing and coming from an advocate like you is a lot different than coming from even mental health professionals. But I want to ask you what role COVID played in this. Because, you know, during the, the COVID era, two years plus, there were a lot of people that were locked in their homes, a lot of people that were stuck with their thoughts, a lot of people that lost their businesses and were in toxic home situations that they had to confront because they were really locked in their homes. What did that role did that play in, in your story and your journey? Yeah, that was honestly, it was kind of like the deciding factor um, when I said earlier about the three ingredients. Um, that was the third, the final, like acute um, trigger for me. Um, like I said, I had two more significant ones, um, a couple months prior and then having to come home and, and just sit there and, and just fixate on those things. Um, at the time I, before a couple months earlier, I called off a wedding. So I came home to quarantine into a house all by myself, but a couple of years prior I had, we had bought that house. So all I knew in that house was myself, Diana and our two dogs. So coming home to the empty house um, and then just sitting there for a month and a half before my incident. Um, just, just like I said, spiraling, fixating on it. I was trying to keep in shape for baseball. Things did just open back up and I had a very small injury while I was doing that. So I couldn't even really exercise as, as I normally would. I couldn't really do things um, that I looked forward to at my house, even because I was kind of hurting a little bit. Um, so even more downtime, even more, sitting around time to kind of just, uh, fixate on these things and stress about them and feel like I was kind of just failing at life, to be honest. And that led to, uh, reaching for alcohol to try to numb these things, uh, which I unfortunately drank a little bit more often than I normally would have at that time. Um, and like I said, just, it was just a, a tough recipe. And, and I think COVID, like I said, was, was like the final or quarantine, I guess was the, the final ingredient for the recipe of a disaster. Yeah, a lot of people don't talk about the effects that the, the pandemic had on mental health. You know, there was a lot of focus on COVID itself and the virus itself, but not a lot on the people that were struggling in silence, people that lost everything, people that locked in their homes, people that use fitness and exercise as an outlet. And now all of a sudden the liquor stores are open, but the gyms are closed. It was the dumbest time in American history, at least in my lifetime, certainly in my lifetime of things that the government has done. Uh, and I just think it's destroyed so many lives, lives that are still shattered and a lot of people that aren't able to get help and that spiraled. But I want to go back to what happened to you and you chose to take your life. You survived it. You're sitting there. You're thinking, now what do I do? Take us back to that and take us to what was going through your mind. Yeah, it was obviously a very heavy time and very intense time. And leading up to it, it was one of those things that's just a sign again of like how easily, not easily, but how you can really justify anything if you keep it inside, inside of you and, and just think to yourself. Um, so I just, I was able to com, com, I convince myself that I wasn't, my life was not worth living anymore. Um, and unfortunately, like I said, it led to a really bad decision of, of attempting to take my life and sitting there after pulling the trigger and being able to look at being, seeing what I was looking at before I pulled the trigger was the most confusing time of my life because 
I mean, realistically, I was just, I was just picturing or imagining what I see in movies. Um, just that would be it. So when I was still looking at the same thing I was looking at before, when I wasn't feeling pain initially, um, and just sitting there, like I said, I was so confused on how this is possible. And that's when my, I just thought I got to the next part of the process and was like, okay, let me just go sit and wait for this to happen. I, maybe it takes time. Um, but like I said, I was just so, so confused. So I ended up moving around my house. Um, like I said, for the first four hours, I must've just been in shock and didn't even feel the pain of what I had done, even though there was significant amount of, of bleeding, um, a hole going through my face and just again, just sitting there with confusion and every second of that, of those four hours was just like, okay, it's going to happen now. It's going to happen now. It's going to happen now. When it didn't, it just got more and more confusing. Um, and it got to around uh, midnight and I was like, okay, this is usually time that I should just go to bed, I guess. Um, so I ended up getting into my bed and having a little moment like, okay, like we're not going like, to, I'm not going to be waking up in this. So, um, once I hit, hit, hit the pillow, um, close my eyes. I next, next thing I know, seven, eight hours later, I wake up to sunlight coming through the, the blinds of my room. Like what is going on? Like, how is this possible? And the next morning or that morning is when I was able to feel the pain, which is a level I just, I didn't think was possible to be able to feel while being alive. So, um, that's when the first thought of maybe trying again came to mind. Um, but like I said, something, something was just holding me back from trying again. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was just instinctual or it was this subconscious feeling of really wanting to live, um, which I say, I don't know. I'm, I've accepted the fact that that is the case. Like I just mm-hmm. obviously wanted to live. And that's why looking back to the next day when I went throughout from 7 a.m. until almost 4 p.m. until when I it ultimately called 911, I was doing a lot of things to subconsciously save myself. I was at one point, I thought about how I lost a lot of blood, so I need to hydrate. Um, took a Tylenol to try to help with the pain, which is just so like crazy to think about because it wasn't going to actually help. Um, I showered twice. I brushed my teeth at one point. I put band-aids on. I was doing all these things that were showing signs of I was trying to save myself. But um, again, in that moment, I was just so overwhelmed with my emotions and with my thoughts that um, I couldn't think clearly, which is, again, another just another sign that I should have been getting some help beforehand. Um, but like I said, ultimately, I was able to wait it out um, and got to a point later in the afternoon where I was, again, just in so much pain throughout the day that I w- made my way out to where I did it before the night, the night before, um, grabbed the gun in my left hand and had 911 dialed in my right hand and just sat there for 15, 20 minutes looking at both of them, trying to decide which one I wanted to do. And luckily I got to a point where I was able to just sit there and physically, um, literally just figuratively all, all those things just actually choose life. And within 10 minutes, ambulance was there to save me and get me to the hospital, get some surgeries. And like I said, come out of it with a realization that I needed, I needed help and I needed to lean on some, some support systems. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's actually a sign of strength. And now, like I said, it's gotten me to a point because of all that help and because of all that support and all these processes in place, um, I've been able to get to a point of much more stableness and now hopefully help people realize and learn from my mistake that don't wait until things get to that point to um, get the help you need and look at mental health as a preventative thing instead of an emergency crisis type thing. 
So I think a lot of people, a lot of my viewers are shocked to hear how much time went by and how you could just be in that situation. I'm sure a lot of it had to do with shock, but you shot yourself. You're sitting there essentially slowly dying. I don't know if you're a person of faith or not, but do you think that there's any element of a hand of God or a hand of a higher being over you in some way? Because it, what you went through and the time that you went through it, it sounds pretty miraculous to listen to unless there wasn't something intervening there. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard not to believe in it because for those reasons, um, I'm not necessarily a man of one specific religion, but I definitely believe in some kind of higher power just because of these reasons. Um, cause like I said, on paper, scientifically, anatomically, none of this made sense. Um, I, it's a little graphic obviously, but the amount of blood that was in my house and the amount of damage that was on my face and even to come out of it looking normally, um, is just so beyond any kind of fact or on paper kind of, uh, truth. So, um, I'm very comfortable saying that some greater power, um, had a hand in this because like I said, it just doesn't make any sense. And that's why that's given me a little bit of a, a cushion when it comes to having faith in the future and having trust in something bigger than me, because not everything is up to me. Not everything is up to us in our lives. And it's my life is another reminder of that because if, it, if things were up to me, I wouldn't be here right now. Um, and even more thinking back even more three years ago, four years ago, someone would have told me I'd be speaking publicly or talking out loud on platforms about anything. I would have laughed at them because I was so insecure with my intelligence or my, my speaking ability. Um, and now this is my job actually. So it's just like, like getting back to the question, I, I definitely believe that there's something bigger at, at, at stake here. And I'm comfortable saying um, it's, it's something much bigger than me. Certainly some kind of divine intervention, but what you're doing now is so important. You know, I, as a person of faith, think that you were put on this earth to spread this message because it comes from you. It's more well-received by people like you than maybe others. So your story is amazing. Everything you went through is amazing. And then what you're doing with it now is amazing. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Maybe at some point we'll be back at the bungalow in Santa Monica with our good friend Joey Gallo. Who knows? That's a story for another day. <laughs> but thank you so much for being here. We'll end it on a happy high note. And please stay in touch because we would love to see you if you're ever in Nashville. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for allowing me to be on the show. And I'm, I'm, I'm so excited to be able to talk with you. I appreciate you. We'll talk soon. All right. Up next, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has declared open season on the invasive python species. And my next guests are answering the call. Meet this female python hunting duo next. What's up, everyone? It's Nick Wright, and I got something exciting to talk to you about today. Angie, your ultimate destination for getting all your jobs done well. Now, Angie isn't just your average home services marketplace. It's a game changer with over 150 million homeowners served and a network of over 200,000 skilled pros. Angie has experience and expertise to tackle any project with ease. Whether you're looking to spruce up your backyard or undergo a major home renovation, Angie's got your back and their pros are locally based, often running small businesses right in your community. And here's the best part. 
Angie makes the process seamless. From researching and comparing pros to scheduling services at your convenience, Angie's user-friendly platform puts you in control. So why settle for anything less than perfection when it comes to your home? With Angie, you can trust every project will be completed with the utmost care and professionalism. So get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today to discover why homeowners across the nation are turning to Angie to get all their jobs done well. As we kick off registration for the 2021 Python Challenge, this will be a 10-day challenge from July 9th until July 18th. Participants who remove the most pythons and who capture the longest pythons will receive prizes at the end of the competition. Now, as part of my focus on restoring the Everglades, I've charged FWC with dedicating more resources and taking innovative approaches to removing invasive Burmese pythons, which can grow to 20 feet in length, weigh up to 200 pounds, and cause major damage to the ecosystem. I mean, they, these, these things will eat everything. And we spend all this money and we want to do all this stuff to restore, but yet if they're just uh, running roughshod over all the other species, um, you know, th that's not what we want. You heard it from Governor Ron DeSantis. These giant pythons who are not native to Florida are wreaking havoc on the Everglades and the native species who call it home. A little background for you on this problem. These giant pythons, who are known to eat everything from deer to even giant alligators, came to be such a problem in the early 90s after Hurricane Andrew swept through South Florida. During that time, these snakes, as well as other exotic animals, were popular household pets. And when the hurricane came, many were abandoned or even inadvertently released into the wild where they spread and bred like wildfire. Now listen. I'm a huge animal lover, and in fact, my first job at age 15 was a snake holder at Reptile Gardens in Rapid City, South Dakota. Weird, I know. But these massive snakes do not belong in Florida, and they are crushing the natural ecosystem. So what to do? Bring in the snake hunters, like my next guest, who make up an all-female snake hunting team. And joining me now are Python Elimination Specialists, Donna Khalil and Jaina Corns. Thank you guys so much for being with me. I am so excited to have you. Thank you for having us, yeah, Tommy. Yeah, nice, nice to be here. Yes. So listen, I know that you guys love snakes, but you also hunt snakes. So you have to explain that dynamic to me. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, both of us are, are herpers. Uh, it's kind of like birders, but uh, we like to go out and look for, for snakes. And we've been doing it since uh, we were kids. And, um, you know, it just kind of falls into what we do now. Um, we're, we're still kids out there looking for snakes, but unfortunately uh, the Burmese python is, is a snake that doesn't belong here. So when we come across them, we do have to remove them from the environment. So when you say you remove them from the environment, what exactly does that entail? Because some of these snakes, like the snakes that you guys captured, they are huge. Uh, how does one even go about something like that? Right. Well, um, we're, we're basically driving on levees and roads uh, in our vehicle with uh, lights um, that to, to light up the night because that's when they're they're moving. So we have to go out there when they're moving. And um, we basically drive along and wait until we see them. Um, then we get out of the car and go down there and grab them right behind the head and start wrestling them. Yes. And depending on the size of the snake, that depends on uh, how big of a, a wrestle match we're going to have. Right. So yeah, that, that there is a nine and a half footer and, um, 
Yeah, it gave me. It, it took me about five five minutes or so to to get that one under control. The the sixteen footer that we may have talked about later took a lot longer oh, than I that. Did, yeah, <laughs> it's and a I major adrenaline rush. Yeah, I believe that that sixteen footer is on the wall behind you. Is that correct? Actually, no. no, those two are 12 footers. That's uh, the first one that I caught uh, on my own. And then the second one that I caught with my brother, but the uh, 16 footer is back there. And uh, we could show you that one. If you'd like to see that it didn't There's fit this. on the, it didn't fit on the wall, the 16 footer. <laughs> yeah. We have the skull that we can show. You can yeah, see wow. all those nice teeth. So yeah. That. That's why we try not to get bit because it, yeah, if you see, I don't know if we put it in uh, closer to the, to the camera, you can see the um, the teeth are, are facing backwards, and they're right. sharp as you know, sharp as little needles. And so, if they get in you facing backwards, they will cut you wide open. So you really don't want to get bit. No. So a little snake education for people, and you guys are going to give a lot more snake education. But I'm reverting back to my my teenage years at Reptile Gardens, learning about pythons and all this. For those that aren't familiar, pythons are not poisonous; they are constrictors. But those teeth, they still have. And unlike a, a venomous snake that you know punctures and then removes its teeth, those snakes dig in and they've got those teeth facing backwards so that they really cling on to their prey so that they can constrict. So are you guys ever nervous? Jane, I'll ask you, are, are you ever nervous when you're wrestling one of these snakes that they are actually going to be able to dig into you, constrict you, and even kill you? Um, yes, I never worry about being killed by one. I usually get it in control really quickly. Um, I grab it by the head and then I try to put it on the ground. And most of the time when I'm out on a survey looking for the pythons, I'm generally by myself. So there's no room for a mistake with me. So I take my snake bag, I put it over my hand and I go and I grab the snake behind the head and then I immediately put it in the bag. So the whole transaction usually takes me under five minutes to do, but um, I do get wrapped up. It happened to me a couple of nights ago and I was in handcuffs. So um, I have to maneuver really quickly out in the field um, because you can get yourself in a situation. And I definitely try to avoid being in that situation, which is never a good thing to be in. So yeah, I, um, what yeah. do you, yeah. especially when you're on your own, it can be nerve wracking. Yeah. It can definitely be nerve wracking when you're on your own. So yeah. I assess the situation, get out and try to get the Python as quickly as I can. So you guys have to tell me too, after you capture the Python, I imagine you kill the Python. I don't want to know how, but then what next? I mean, I see that obviously they, they use the skins for various things. They can be made into a lot of things. Do you eat the pythons? Do you dispose of the pythons? What happens next? Because I'm very curious. Um, we make products. <laughs> so wow. here's a wallet. Um, of course, we have the skulls preserved. Hats. And we have so, hats over here. And I have earrings. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's many different ways that we can utilize the skins into products. Right. Um, nothing goes to waste. So. Um, unfortunately, the meat does. Because <laughs> the meat the, goes to waste. Yeah. Unfortunately, because uh, they, they do have uh, mercury. Uh, a lot of them do have mer a high mercury content. And uh, it's not uh, safe to eat um, in large quantities. I, I have had them before. Um, I usually maybe, you know, eat a snake once a year or so, you know, just to kind of party tricks sort of thing. Oh. But um, yeah, <laughs> Python cookies, that sort of thing. I made them make them with the eggs. But um, but no, it's not something that you can keep in your diet. So it, it's just too much mercury and, uh, you know, warn against not not uh, not eating them. So that's why we try to 
you know, we try to give them a second life through the products that we make. Yes. And um, help pay the gas bills on uh, with all the driving. <laughs> yeah, no there. kidding. Well, hey, listen, that's a that's a great a great idea, especially with gas prices the way they are now. But also, Absolutely. you guys have snakes, alive snakes as pets. I know you actually have one in your hands right now. So you Thanks. explain this to yeah. me. You have oh, pet snakes. That is a ball python. So that python's <laughs> not going to get as big as the invasive species that you guys are capturing. But you guys are also right. snake lovers. You're not just snake hunters. Right. Yes. This. Yeah. This is Benny. I basically found him uh, abandoned in the Everglades. It's not like, you know, Hurricane Andrew wasn't the only reason there's snakes out there. And I found him in uh, June of 2018 while on a python hunt, you know, looking for Burmese pythons. Someone had just dumped him on the side of the road, and I drove up and saw him there and, and brought him home. And he's lovable. Uh, he's not going to get more than about six feet. He actually loves my husband more than me, so I'm a little <laughs> jealous. But um, but he puts up with me because I feed him and clean his cage. But uh, they're they're actually they make good pets, and uh, you know more than a million people have snakes as pets. So they're not scary creatures. You know, to, you don't want to kill them. You know, they, they, when you see a snake, even in your yard, leave it alone. You know, it may be venomous, and if you try to mess with it, you might find yourself in the hospital, and that's an expensive endeavor and hurtful. Um, so just leave snakes alone. Um, don't abandon them. It, you know, it, if you do have a pet and you can't keep them for any reason, find another home for them, bring them back to the pet shop, you know, ask them to find a new home for them. Uh, because, you know, these, these are just like cats and dogs. I kind of like my cats better. They cuddle a little better, but, uh, but, but if you're allergic to cat hair or cat, you know, dog hair, here you go. Perfect. Perfect. Well, cat. Hey, and if you have a dog or a cat that you're not really that fond of, you could probably just leave it with that snake for a while and it would do the trick. So <laughs> that we, we, yeah, let's hope not. I I'm also an animal lover, but I, I mean the snake, that's a beautiful ball Python, but my goodness. I want to talk about this bounty, though, because Governor Ron DeSantis has put a bounty on these Burmese pythons, which is not like the python you're holding. That's a ball python. These Burmese pythons, they're going through the Everglades and they are getting deer. They're eating alligators. They are absolutely decimating that ecosystem. So the native species have no chance. So for all of the wildlife activists out there, for those, you know, the, the PETA folks out there that are going to be so disgruntled by what you guys do in this interview, please explain to them why this is necessary for the other animals in the ecosystem system yeah they, they they basically sit actually they were they were um replaced there in the everglades uh, back in 78 they found the first python that was uh that that was caught down there and it was an 11 foot python and since that day they knew that there was a problem with them eating the um you know the, the all of the rabbits and the opossums and and raccoons they're all gone already you know yeah. there there are none left in everglades national park uh, and that was that was a 2001 study. Um, and I hunt down there all the time and still do not see them. No. Uh, and I, I grew up down here. And so prior to, to the 70s, you know, we'd go down there. We could count hundreds of, of rabbits on the side of the road. And now there are zero. I mean, literally zero yeah. down in Everglades National Park. And, and, and you know, because of uh, our warming climates, they're moving further north. We didn't think that they'd go much further north than, say, you know, Miami or Fort Lauderdale, but we're finding them in West Palm Beach now. So they're moving up the coast, expanding, and everywhere they go, you do not see rabbits, you do not see opossums, you do not see raccoons. That's how you know there's pythons there. 
if you don't find the small small mammals. And we so. also catch really close to people's homes, yes. which can potentially, you know, pose as a major threat to your your pets, your yes. dog, your cat, Absolutely. pet yeah. bird on your patio. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's many I've been called. I've been called to how to, to friends' houses like there's a python in my backyard and mm. you know it's eating the cat food. It's like, no, it's not eating the cat food. It's going after your, your cat. cat. <laughs> Keep oh, your geez. cat inside, you know, and and you know, yeah. call me before uh, before it gets away. Because unfortunately that uh, you know, you you've got to get there pretty quick or or they'll just take off into somebody else's yard. And and one of the reasons we're out there removing them, you know, a lot of people say, Oh, well, look, they're out there, you're never gonna get them all. It's like, yeah, but you know what, if we just left them them all out there they'd all get to be 18 feet long and they would come into your yards they will expand into neighborhoods because guess what in my yard i've got possums and raccoons right. so they're going to be coming for them and then once they eat them they will come if you leave a cat outside or a dog yeah it you won't find it there the next morning they, you know the pythons will eat them they do right now. i'll show you the you know <laughs> let me show you the the 16 footer I have personally caught two pythons in the past six months that were stalking. Uh, one was two nights ago, stalking a barn owl. And the barn owl was acting just really spazzed out. And um, I'm looking around. I knew something was unusual. And boom, there's a nine foot, five inch python laying on the side of the road. And um, I've also caught one that was going after a raccoon. So they are eating our native mammals and birds. Yeah. Look, so. at, look at how big the, the mouth this on this crazy. is. This is, this is the, the, the face on the snake. Ugh. So it, it can easily right. eat. This size snake, the 16-footer, can actually eat a, a deer. Oh, it, this, this, this wide. Look at it. It's, it's as wide as I am. It, I doubt that it would be able to eat me, 16-footer, but an 18-footer, they, they have eaten people in their in their native lands. So, you know, we don't want them to be out there to get this big. Well, and they can, they can eat about anything they can get their mouth around. So, you know, you, know, you just, you never know. Ladies, you guys are doing a wonderful service. I hope that sometime I can come hunt pythons with you because it is a lifelong dream of mine. Keep doing what you're doing. And I hope you get some more big ones and I hope you can cash in on it. And at the very least, you should be able to sell those skins because I think those are very wanted items for a lot of folks. But thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yes. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Thank Thanks you. For Thanks for having us. All right. Still ahead. Today marks the sixth anniversary of the Dallas police massacre, wherein five officers were slain by a shooter inspired by the BLM movement. My final thoughts are next. It's July 7th, 2022, and six years ago in Dallas, Texas, five officers were ambushed, gunned down and murdered by a monster at a BLM protest. And I have some final thoughts. Today, July 7th, belongs to these men. Officer Ahrens, Officer Kroll, Officer Smith, Officer Thompson, and Officer Zamaripa. Today marks the day those five brave and heroic law enforcement officers were killed and seven other officers wounded in an ambush during a Black Lives Matter protest in Dallas, Texas, by a shooter who unabashedly set out to kill white cops in the name of BLM. I was in Dallas when this tragedy went down, and I still get chills thinking about it. If you'll recall, and the mainstream media will do their damnedest to prevent you from recalling, this massacre occurred during a Black Lives Matter protest in the summer of 2016. The shooter set out to kill white cops, plain and simple. 
And if that anti-police rhetoric sounds familiar, it's because it's only worsened in the last six years. It hit a fever pitch in the George Floyd riot season of summer 2020. The war on cops is real, and it's being stoked, or at the very least excused, by the Democrat Party and the mainstream media at large. This is what happens when Democrat leaders from the top down placate to Marxist and anarchist groups like BLM, whose transparent mission is to defund police. And it's not just defunding. It's a multi-step process. Demoralize officers, decriminalize acts of lawlessness, defund police, and demonize the badge. Add all those D's up, including the D for Democrat, and you get a war on cops. Think I'm exaggerating? Listen to this so-called civil rights attorney on MSNBC, Charles Coleman, try to explain, excuse, and legitimize this already deadly year for law enforcement. Now, earlier this year, the FBI director noted that 73 law enforcement officers were killed in the line of duty last year, the highest number since the 9-11 attacks. I know this is sort of apples and oranges, but when you look at the totality of all these things going on and you're talking about these cultural problems versus training problems, I mean, what are your comments on this new data? My comment is this is very simple. At a certain point, there's only but so much peace that's going to be had, unfortunately. When you don't understand the notion of protest, when you don't understand the notion of asking nicely, unfortunately, there are people who are going to decide that this is the way to respond. And so this, uh, th this what you're seeing, that report that you just, just described, that's the result of years and years and years of pleading for being able to approach law enforcement and engage law enforcement with basic standards of dignity and humanity. And there's only but so many times that you're going to be able to violate people's civil rights, their human rights, their dignity, their humanity before they respond in a different manner than they already have. What you just heard is a prime example of why we have a war on cops. Thugs, degenerates, cop haters, and cop killers are not only fed the false and race-baited narrative of widespread systemic racism and policing, but they are dog-whistled to by jackasses like that Charles Coleman and told attacks on law enforcement are to be expected or even understood. No, I won't allow it. And I hope all the decent Americans listening to this will take a stand and not allow it either. Law enforcement is not a job. It's a calling. But when we as a culture perpetuate the anti-cop narrative and back it up with anti-cop policies to the point where protecting and serving becomes nearly impossible, don't be surprised when fewer brave souls want to answer that call. These men and women of law enforcement are more than just a badge and a blue uniform. They are parents, children, brothers, sisters, husbands, and wives that just want to serve their duty and return home safely to their loved ones each night. And in a time when proper parenting has become as scarce as toilet paper in March 2020, our officers are tasked to be babysitters, therapists, essential workers, mass police, and punching bags for people and communities who need them but proudly and vocally hate them at the same time. Yet, they still hold the line, running towards danger as others run away. And though polls show the majority of Americans support police and oppose to funding them, the anti-cop rhetoric continues on a daily basis in Congress, in the White House, and all across the media. The longer this goes on and the longer those of us who support law enforcement remain silent, the closer we get to another ambush, another attack, another Dallas. And sadly, we become so used to it that most Americans don't bat an eyelash as our officers are gunned down or assaulted in our streets. Even ardent supporters of law enforcement likely can't remember even a single name of an officer who paid the ultimate price, not even one of the 178 we've lost so far this year. Look, we can't change the way the left treats and talks about the badge. 
We might not be able to show those who love to hate our officers the error of their ways, but we can try and we can lead by example. We can also pray God puts a blanket of protection around our law enforcement officers every single time they put on that badge and uniform. You officers are the underappreciated who must do the unimaginable and see the unthinkable to protect the ungrateful. And one day I know many will hang their heads in shame when they finally wake up and realize the evil they defended and even celebrated and the heroes they ridiculed. So on this six-year anniversary of what was a horrible and deadly day for law enforcement, I sincerely thank all of you who continue to hold that thin but mighty line between good and evil. Those are my final thoughts from Nashville. God bless and take care.